Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. Each week, a recovered alcoholic woman is interviewed and asked questions about certain topics surrounding her journey of recovery with your host, Stephanie Crawford. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host of this here podcast, Recovered Interviews with Alcoholic Women. And today we have on a very special guest. And I know I say that all the time, but every single time I say it, it is absolutely true. Today's guest is a very beloved Maggie's girl who you can always find up here um, helping women, volunteering, um, and she's somebody who just really gives of herself to to others. And it's a really, it's she has such a, a sweet spirit and it's just a really beautiful thing to see. And I'm sure by the end of this, if you don't know her and already agree with me, you will agree with me. So Lynn, hi. Hi, Stephanie. Um, if you don't mind just giving the listeners a little bit of background information about what you're, about yourself and what your drinking looked like and what led you to get sober. Okay. Well, um, thanks for having me. Um, I grew up in a home where alcohol was pretty, it was normal. Uh, I never knew a life where pretty heavy drinking wasn't normal. My dad was in the military and we left Colorado where I was born when I was three and it was normal to have wine at dinner you know even for the kids and so I never really knew life without alcohol of course I wasn't drinking alcoholically when I was five but um, when we moved back to the states and I was 10 I remember really really enjoying my parents cocktail parties and so forth because I could clean up the glasses and put them all in one big glass and I would drink it and I was probably more like 12 when that started happening but I remember that just like feeling of like I'm more comfortable in my own skin because moving back from Germany to Texas was quite the culture shock oh I um, bet and I got bullied a lot and it wasn't the roughest time so I just remember that ease and comfort even mm-hmm. at that young age and so it just continued through high school and then in college I went to school to be a nurse and the drinking was heavy enough that I couldn't study. Um, so I was asked to, politely asked to leave in my junior year, kind of like, your GPA is like not good, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and no wonder, because I yeah. was drinking myself into oblivion yeah. just about every night before I cracked the books. I left there and became a medical assistant, lost many jobs like over and over um, because I would show up drunk or I would in this. Fridays because I was partying and then Mondays because I was hungry. You know, the mm-hmm. kind of a typical story. I hear that a lot. Um, um, I ended up marrying a man that was <clears throat> really abusive. Not so much in the in the beginning, but mm-hmm. pretty abusive. And um, unfortunately, when I was in my 30s, we were introduced to outside issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, well, primarily, I mean, I, it was always started with a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that caused me to get into significant legal problems um, with the law because I was chasing, I would get drunk and then chase the outside issues, mm-hmm. as we call it. Um, so I had uh, in and out of jail from that point. I mean, 
at one point I was working in a government agency and they were really working out like it's hard to get fired from a government agency because they'll send you to rehab and rehab yeah. oh wow so they tried that and then again eventually the court systems tried over and over I was in like a drug court and you know they sent me to Nexus twice for 45 days a piece and I was nowhere near wanting to quit mm-hmm. so I was and it was a sentence right like mm-hmm. you're sentenced to Nexus so yeah of course I wasn't willing but it, while I was there, I met somebody new, and I got involved with them, um, invited them to live with me, and thus started the next relationship. Oh, I remember you talking about this. Yeah. yeah, which also ended up being very abusive. I think my, I, I just hated myself. Yeah. I just hated myself to the point where I didn't think I deserved any better than that. There were good times and bad times, of course, like there is in any relationship, but. So the drinking and, and outside issues continued. I ended up serving a lot of time in jail, like inside and out. Ended up with six felonies. Wow. So the last time ended up being an assault. Um, like most of them were, um, I, I, well, I, I'm not ashamed of it. It was like burglary of a motor vehicle, burglary of a habitat. I mean, it just got out of control. Mm-hmm. And many times I would just like sleep on the streets. Like I, had, I was a homeless person, even though I could go home. Mm, because really? I knew I couldn't drink and use at home. Oh, okay. So, like, at times, I one time I had, like, this really great spot behind a liquor store where I would, like, surround myself with barbed wire at night so, you know, I didn't wake up with somebody on me. I mean, it was just crazy. Um, and that's because it was behind a liquor store. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on I had, like, bootleggers, and I could get it any time. But the, I committed crimes to get what I needed. Uh-huh. Um, which today, you know, I, I lived a lot of shame behind that for a long time. And now I don't because I can go to the 24-hour club. I can go to Homerbound and somebody, uh, you know, a few people relate. But I want to stop and say that I know that that's not what made me an alcoholic. For sure. Right. My, whatever I went through in my childhood, whatever abuse I went through, that's not what made me an alcoholic. Right. I happen to suffer pretty severe consequences. Same. Behind my drinking. But, yeah. And not everybody does that. So yeah. I just want to make it clear that. I don't want anybody to hear me and say, well, I never went to prison. Mm-hmm. You know, I was never homeless. So I'm not an alcoholic. Right? But I think, you know, like what is what is good about you sharing those things is for the people who have done that. You know, like it gives them hope that maybe they're not too far gone mm-hmm. or, you know, just because they did those things doesn't make them a bad person. Because from what I see of you and what I know of you, like your heart is so pure and so kind and so like it's I also think that by sharing that it speaks to this stigma or stereotype that we have um or maybe not we because we're in recovery but like society or has about people who end up in jail or who are homeless or things of that nature or who even alcoholic you know absolutely and that reminds me of something I read last night. Can I read something? Absolutely, book? yes. I would love that. Um, because it always freaks me out a little bit when you say you're such a kind and gentle soul because, oh, my God, if you would have known me 12 years ago, right? Like, you mm-hmm. you do what you have to do to survive, and 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 you have to be mean. And especially in prison, like, you, you can't go in there weak. And uh, so I learned to be very tough and very mean. Really? Yeah. So this wow. is that's what freaks me out when people say, "Oh, you're so," because they were like me to Winnie the Pooh. I'm like, what? You know? I was like, who are you talking to? Yeah. <laughs> but it says um, on page 20, uh, 27, Here and there, once in a while, alco- alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are a phenomena. 
They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacement, displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once a guiding force of our lives, of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Mm-hmm. So it made me think of that, but yeah, it's, it's all gone. Yeah, it's a complete psychic change yeah, is absolutely. what has occurred. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, at the end, I, uh, my judge said, like, if you come back here, you're going to do 25 years. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I just got on it. So I did my three years, um, got out, and I knew if it happened again, I'd do 25 years. Did that stop me? Did that make me stop drinking? You'd think it would, right? That's mm-hmm. what the insanity is. Mm-hmm. And I stayed sober for a while, like, out of fear. And it was miserable. Because although I was not drinking and using, I didn't have that recovery. I, didn't ha- I wasn't recovered, right? I wasn't mm-hmm. working a program, so I was still angry and bitter and you know struggling, like white-knuckling it day to day to day. So, of course, um, my, my spouse and I had an issue, and, and um, a, a lot of alcohol and drugs were brought home. And not working a program, I'm like, no one will know, right? Mm. Just, just do a little. And that set off a six-month thing where I was um, very out of control and lost, lost my house and my car and my kids. And I'll never forget the night that I was pulling out of the driveway because I needed to go get some more alcohol. And my kids were standing on the front porch. And they were like 20 and 23 at the time. And they were like, if you leave, the door's being locked. We will never talk to you again. Your stuff's going to be on the front porch. And this was my house. But I couldn't make myself not pull out of the driveway. Wow. Yeah. And so that started a six-month binge. And... Um, just to, I'm sorry, I didn't want to spend too much time in the past, but. Oh, no, it's, I mean, we're only at nine minutes anyway. Oh, that's the way it always is. I think I've been talking for 30 yeah. minutes for like 30 <laughs> seconds. Um, so yeah, I finally had to hit, um, I ended up in South Dallas one night and then I'd been out for four or five days because I would drink and then do something to make me come up and then drink and then like pass out for a while. And anyway, so I called home one night and my, um, it was my dad's phone cause he was always one, just no questions asked. Come, I'll come anytime, come get you. And uh, I had had his car because my car had been repossessed, so I'd been gone for like four days. My son answered the phone, and he said, well, I shouldn't even be answering this phone. We all hate you. Like, we're never speaking to you again. Grandpa tried to cross the street on foot and got hit by a car, and he's probably going to die. And so I think that was just pulled me up short in my tracks. And I called my brother, who was in Wiley. Um, so I was in South Dallas. He was in Wiley, right forever far away and he said I'll come get you but I'll take you to a hospital or I'll take you to a rehab and so I was like well you know I've been in and out of AA for you know whatever and it doesn't work so take me to a hospital so I went to Green Oaks and I'll never forget sitting on the curb at that 7-Eleven waiting for my brother to arrive and just so full of self-hatred and I killed my dad and but I wasn't willing I mean I I didn't I thought I was hopeless Mm-hmm. Like, why well, go to rehab? Because I'm hopeless. Yeah. So I went to uh, Green Oaks for like eight days and didn't participate, just laid in my bed. I was just, I don't know how they let me go because I was still like, I'm going to, I don't care if I live or die. I just didn't. I mean, I was past even wanting to kill myself. Like, mm-hmm. whatever happens. I didn't want to die because of my kids, but I, I thought they'd be better off without me. Like, yeah. I thought, who cares? You know, I'm a loser. And, so on the eighth day, they gave me a list of places to go, and like the fourth place was Maggie's, and I called all the other three places because I was familiar with Maggie's. Oh, you were? Yeah, my spouse and I um, would come to meetings every once in a while, like ten years ago. 
okay. So, but they said, don't call Maggie's. We've got too many rules, which hilarious now because every place has rules. Jobs yeah, I don't rules. think we yeah. have too many rules anyways. No, I don't either. So anyway, all the other places were like, well, you, you can come. Like, you can come sleep on the in the yard, and then maybe we'll have room for you the next day. And I'm like, and then Maggie's was like, just get here. And so it was a God thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that was the beginning of it. And I, I think I did my step one before I came in. And then I remember learning step one, that we admitted we were powerless, and our life had become unmanageable. And, and I heard that, and I heard that it was a disease, and, and that's what opened up that door just like, I'm not a bad person, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the ladies in the office came out the next day and was like, hi, Lynn, good morning. I have to shout out to Rosie because it's Rosie. But she said, um, good morning, Lynn. And I was like, how do you know my name? And she's like, of course I know your name. I love you. And that was just mind-boggling. Wow, yeah. It was mind-boggling, yeah. That's so, so cool. I think that I'm so glad that you shared that too <clears throat> because – it's just like little things like that that can make such a difference in somebody's life, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we think that they don't matter, but they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I'm up here. I try to remember everybody's, every girl in the house's name because how important it was for somebody that thought enough about me to remember my name. And I'm going to start crying, but no, I it's love, happy tears. <laughs> yeah, I love that so much. So um, you got to Maggie's, and this was the first time. Yes, this was the first time. And that was the first time that you learned about the disease Mm -hmm. and that you had this physical allergy and this mental obsession. That was also, you worked the steps, right? Yes. And that was the first time you had worked the steps? Yes, because even though I'd been in and out of AA for like 12 years, well, 15 years at that time, I never got taught the steps. I I don't even remember opening the book very much. I don't even know if I had a book. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. But then, like I said, I didn't want it. I thought if I could sit in a meeting and say I'm an alcoholic that I would gain sobriety some magical way. You know? Yeah. No, I remember, too, like being in meetings and being mad that these promises weren't coming true for mm-hmm. me, but I wasn't doing anything except for going to meetings. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't understand. I don't know. It's all such, I think, divine orchestration for when we're ready and when the solution's presented and when we take the action. It's just... You know, it all happens the way it's supposed to happen, I think. Um, so you got some time that first time. How long did you have sober before you ended up relapsing? 15 months. And I'm going to ask you the question that probably everyone's asked you a thousand times. But so, like, what happened? Well, it's okay. I'm glad you asked because okay. I think it's really important to know that I went to sober living um, had a great sponsor. I worked the program, like she says, like my hair was on fire. At least I thought I was, right? And and she says, yes, I did get recovered. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I was recovered. But I think I had more, um, you know, they say faith without works is dead. I had all the works, mm-hmm. but I didn't trust God, and I and I didn't sense that the way I needed to. And so um, it was quite a challenge. So I think I relapsed way before I took the first drink because – it was the end of COVID, well, not the end of COVID. Back then we thought it was the end of COVID. It was the middle of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, um, I w- like I said, I wasn't ten-stepping very well. And then like, oh, you know, I can do a day without my prayer meditation in the morning. Or, oh, I missed it. And then the next day I'd miss it. And then, um, and then um, so it became less important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then carrying the message, which we, we know now is a key component of staying sober. Mm-hmm. Um, the places where I was carrying the message shut down for COVID and of course I'm like oh well that's it you know I can't hear the message instead of like 
being on fire, like, okay, let me find something else. Yeah. I can find something else. Um, I just quit. And so one day I'm driving past this place where I used to buy liquor and that thought popped into my mind where we can't tell the truth from the false, which is I can just have one. Nobody will know. I'll just have one, keep going. And then the other thought was like, call your sponsor. And I was so, by then in my untreated alcoholism again, by then I, you know, I, I took that first drink. Then I was out for four days. So, so, okay. So you had the thought, was that the first time the thought came into your mind? Had you been thinking about drinking at all before then? I, I don't know that I can answer that question. I don't remember. Well, and the reason why I want to bring that up is because I know sometimes like we think that we'll be able to see the relapse coming or that we'll probably be like obsessing about drinking for a while before it happens. But it sounds like for you, it was just a thought, you know? And yeah. When I left the house that day, I had no intention of drinking. Yeah. Did you think that relapse was possible? Like, was any part of you like, I need to get back to the program or anything like that? I, I don't remember. I know that the program became less and less important. Yeah. And the prayer became less and less important. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's... Did anybody that, say anything to you about resting on your laurels or anything? Well, I'm sure... Well, my sponsor told me several times, I'm sure. Like, but I... Um, yeah, I was pretty miserable by then because so when something happened, like my kids had some Christmas presents stolen, it was Christmas Day. I was like, I'm going to go down there and take them some chocolate milk and some donuts. Let's figure this out. And Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of, I'm sure, you know, so I was um, spiritually getting sick. Yeah. And I'm sure she tried. I just don't remember a lot. Yeah. And when we are spiritually sick sometimes it's even hard to see that we're spiritually sick mm-hmm. you know i wasn't and and that's a big thing i like to tell people ask the people that i see or that i like chair meeting how important it is to be very very transparent and honest with your sponsor mm-hmm. because i was i think in the end i was like wanting to her to think that i was okay yes and i wasn't being transparent and i wasn't being honest and so you she can't help me yeah if i'm not being Really honest with yeah. myself and with her. I mean, absolutely, 100% true. I mean, and there's been times for me, too, where, like, I haven't been wanting to get completely honest with my sponsor. And I've called her praying that she doesn't answer the phone because I'm not ready to tell her, like, the thing, you know. And But it's so, it's so important. And it's also, there's so much freedom that comes with it, too. Yeah. Because you don't have to live this lie. Yeah. Yeah. Like remember what my last lie was, so I don't yeah. mess it up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you were only out for four days. About that. I, I, wow. I, I think that's the amount. So what happened in those four days? You, My car got stolen, and I got ran out of money. Yeah? And I was, like, on the streets of South Dallas, with, and I knew people were at home worrying. I just knew my sisters in my sober living house were worried, and because... I was supposed to be back that night, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I remember calling my sponsor. I think it was my sponsor I called first. And then I called my house. And like, we're waiting to come get you. Where can we come get you? And I, I still don't think I was ready because even when I went back to the house, I was like, nobody talked to me. I'm going straight to I didn't want to hear anything. Yeah. Um, was so, it your pride? Yes, probably. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't look anybody in the eye. The shame. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So um, I was kind of informed that if I want to stay in sober living, I have to go back to Maggie's. You know, and I didn't really want to. I don't think I was done. And I came back to Maggie's and I was a total jerk, which I've since been made amends for. <laughs> I remember getting called in the office. Really? Uh, well, three times for sure. Wow, <laughs> so, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was just like, somebody would tell me a rule or don't do this. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, you weren't ready. So does that mean that you drink again? Yes, the day I left. The day you left. Yeah. Did you know that you were going to drink that day? Not consciously, I don't think. My intention wasn't to to do that. But I remember in the house being really, really restless and irritable and discontent, especially the irritable. Yeah. And that's why I made amends. So. What happened to make you, like, because you came back again, you're a next up graduate, all of those things. So, like, you ended up getting desperate. Like, what brought you to that point? You know, I'm not sure how, I, I'm not sure. I just remember, I, I remember this realization that, like, I hated, I hated the, I was drinking against my will. Like, mm-hmm. I was, like, as soon as I started drinking, I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't stop. And I remember just feeling, oh my God, I'm going to lose everything again. I'm going to go through all this again. And and then luckily I had a really good sponsor who was willing to, she said, we're going to do things different. And I'm not going to be so, don't expect me to be as easy. We're going to do things different. And so, um, yeah, I just remember thinking really pretty quickly that this isn't going to be good. Yeah. Uh, drinking against your own will. I mean, there's if you're an alcoholic, that is definitely something that is relatable and powerful. Once you're to that point, it feels extremely hopeless. Yeah. Well, so tell me what was different this this time in recovery. Um, well, I came to Next Step. I really think that helped me a lot. I mean, I, I will, n- will never be able to repay Next Step for being here. I mean, I learned so much stuff, especially re- um, rewriting um, the selfishness hmm. in um, how it works, Step 3, mm-hmm. not only making it personal, like, I am extremely selfish. I remember that helped me a lot. Um, for some reason, it personalized it. Anyway, yeah, um, I moved to Duncanville, and um, Next Step helped a lot. And we just worked. The, I mean, my sponsors are pretty insistent. I'm going to be really honest with you, and we're going to work this program. Life, Your life depends on it because it does. Mm-hmm. And um, the big difference for me this time is now I'm still working on this part, but like being really, really transparent with my sponsor and being honest. And... So now having the works and the faith. Yeah. Yeah, not just the works. So when did the faith come? I think when I did step two. Yeah. When I was coming back through. Yeah. Yeah. Just totally realizing that I was just like, I don't know. I, I knew I was powerless the first time through, but, but something like, wow, you really are. I mean, like you went and road tested it a couple times within a month and uh, yeah, just that realization that I'm, well, I guess that's step one. Mm-hmm. I, I have no power over this at all. I can't. And I'm going to die. I remember Lisa, the executive director here, telling us, when you walk out that door, you're you're going to drink again. And I was like, what? How can she say that? You're, I'm going to drink again. And then without a solution, you, you're going to drink again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, she's right. Yeah. And so I didn't want to die. Because even though I wouldn't have, I was only 51 at that time. I, I, you know, I didn't have any liver problems. I didn't have any physical problems related to alcohol. 
And um, so I knew it wouldn't be a physical death, but I knew I couldn't handle that utter demoralization mm -hmm. and the self-hatred and the, I couldn't handle that again. Yeah, the spiritual death where it's like every day you wish you were dead. I couldn't could imagine it ever being blacker than it was, so. Yeah, it's a really dark, dark place to be. I mean, active alcoholism, and it's a lonely place to be. Um, so this time you had like a new understanding, of, I guess, of powerlessness, right? Yeah. You, and also of 10, 11, and 12. Yes, but that comes from like understanding your powerlessness, right? Right. So you did the work like your hair was on fire. How quickly did you get through the work? Oh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, I remember next step was for me because I missed a couple of times was closer to four months. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember I was through the steps within two for sure. Yeah. And was there anything different this time about your four step that you saw or anything like that? Uh, it comes back to honesty. Yeah. Not only with my sponsor, but with myself. Like, who am I really resentful at? Where, what are these fears? You know, mm -hmm. what are these harms I've caused? And so being like totally honest and transparent, especially in step five. Yeah. Um, and then as, was there any um, amends that stood out to you this time? Oh, man. Um, uh, the only one, I, I just recently did an, another one for another program I'm working on, a 12-step program I'm working in OA. Mm. And I remember I had to put my mom on there again. And she died in May, which was really, really difficult for me because I was new. Like, when my mom died, I was going to curl up in a ball and just die and drink myself to death. And I, you know, where was I going with that? Yes, I had my mom, I, I had to really take a close look at my relationship with my mom. So despite, um, I had resentments against a lot of the ways that I, things I went through as a child and the way I was raised. And um, and then I had to put her on my harms list because, you know, it would be more than one mm -hmm. and all the ways I'd harmed her. And it was very emotional because she just passed. But I think I hadn't been really, really open and honest about, um, yeah, harming my mom and my resentments at my mom and some issues I had with my brother. Mm -hmm. So... So this was after she passed that this that yes, you did this. Yeah. Did you do like a graveside amends or anything like that, or like write a letter or anything? Yeah. Yes. Oh, actually, I'm not there yet in the program that I'm oh, doing okay, right now. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. But I did with my dad. Oh, you did. My dad died um, three months after getting out of Maggie's the first time. And how was that experience? Uh, I was. I was really fortunate my hair was still on fire and I was on my way to Maggie's from my sober living house which takes like an hour and a half and I was walking up the street and my son called and said he had passed and um you know of course I was just devastated and I remember having that choice because I was working like a program really hard right and I remember there was a liquor store behind me that sh right there on Shiloh and and then I could get on the bus and I remember thinking you can go to that liquor store and you know just go drown your sorrows and or you can get on that bus and I remember getting on the bus. And, like, I don't know, somebody found out at Maggie's. And then, of course, everybody knew within 30 seconds, you know, how it is. So, and I went and did a graveside amends with him. Yeah. Wrote him a letter. Put it in his, um, he was a, a military ceremony, so a cemetery. So he had to have, he couldn't have a lot of stuff, just a little vase. And so I stuck the letter down with the flowers and played his favorite music and, and prayed and talked to him and just made amends. How beautiful yeah. is that? Yeah. But I'm glad you reminded me. I haven't done that. I need to do that with my mom. Well, that would sound like a very beautiful experience that you got to have with your, with your dad. 
Well, you mentioned 10, 11, and 12, which is something that I definitely want to talk about. And um, at Birthday Night, your sponsor mentioned you having like a new experience with Step 10. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> even the first time through and, and this time through, I have a little difficulty with Step 10. And so I'm really trying to get really, really honest and really, really good at it because I don't want to die. I don't want to mm-hmm. drink. So even if it's hard and I have to talk, call and tell myself, you know, wow, I was a real jerk today, uh, that's hard for me because I've always been like a people pleaser. Like I want people to like me. And I think if I, I thought for a while, if I told her that, you know, maybe she wouldn't want to be my sponsor. Maybe she'd think bad of me or I don't know what I was thinking now. I don't care because I want to live. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to get really good at that. Um, and, and that's when it comes back to the honesty and transparency on step 10 yeah and then 11 like not a day passes when I don't I've just got this really really close relationship with my higher power because I know today so I'm praying all the time because I know today like meetings won't keep me sober Maggie's won't keep me sober my sponsor can't keep me sober it's constant it's close relationship and spiritual growth with my higher power Mm -hmm. and helping other alcoholics yeah so that brings me to step 12 right I just love step 12 like in the beginning I was like you want me to do what Sponsor people, I'll make them drink again. I'll say something wrong, or I can't chair that meeting. I'm shy, you know. And uh, my sponsors say we can do hard things. You're okay. Do it anyway. Trust God. Just do it anyway. Wow. So, now I. Oh, sorry. Were you gonna say something? No, no. Okay. Because I want to ask you. Because you said like you're a people pleaser and you don't want uh, people to be mad at you and you want people to like you. Has that gotten in the way of you sponsoring women? Not now. But it used to. Yeah, because I I never. I almost like followed around my sponsees with like a pillow, like, I don't want them to go back out. What can I do? Let me be your ATM. Let me be your marriage counselor, whatever it takes, just um, chasing. You know, even when I knew they were probably going to go back out, let me chase you down. You need to do this. You need to do that. But I didn't know, I didn't want them to be mad mad at me. So I don't think I was really honest with them Mm -hmm. because I don't want them to be mad at me. That's the people pleasing. And today it's like, I know that if I don't tell somebody the truth, they could drink again. They could die. So now I'm going to say, yes, you are selfish. You are being selfish. You know, something like that. I say it in a nice way. I'm not one of those really mean or hard, I shouldn't say mean, hard. Mm-hmm. Like, um, But I've had to have my feelings hurt. I, I don't know if I'd put – I don't know how to say that right. Tina will tell me because she loves me. Mm-hmm. And I, and I want to tell people like it is because I love them. I don't yeah. want them to die. Yeah. So that's really taken me out of the people-pleasing thing. And, and, and having more self-esteem as time goes on. Because I always believe if you want more self-esteem, you do esteemable things. Mm-hmm. And so now that I, I can look at myself and be like, God's okay with me. So I'm okay with me. And if, if you choose not to like me, then I'm okay with that. Wow. So did that answer your question? Yeah. No, I think that's – I mean – was it hard, like, getting to the point where you weren't afraid to make them mad? Yes. Yes. Because that could be saying something that saves them from going back out. hmm Or um, pointing something out that they could change to make their recovery more possible. Yes. I know that was, that was definitely um, something for me, too, that I had to work through, was being okay with a sponsee getting mad or maybe even firing me, Mm -hmm. you know, because of that aspect. 
And then on the other hand, you said you're shy. So you can't uh, chair meetings. Well, I know you do. You were such a lifesaver and you chair a meeting up here. But how were you able to work through that? Like, what would you want to tell someone who's feeling the same way? Well, I'm still afraid when I chair meetings. I'm still afraid doing this podcast, right, when I start. But I think it comes a time when you're just like, well, in the beginning, it's perseverance, right? My sponsor said, I don't care. Do it anyway. You got to do, do it. God's got your back. And I don't know if I really believed that. But because I wanted to get, I wanted to be happy, joyous, and free, I'm gonna do it, even if I'm terrified, right? Um, and it's just gotten easier. Um, knowledge of the the program helps a lot. And my brother calls me Big Book Thumper, and I take that as a compliment. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm still really shy, but um, before I came into this podcast, I was reading that. We're on a different basis now, the basis of trusting and relying on God. And I never differentiated the two between trusting and relying. And so I'm just relying today that God's going to say something through me. Mm-hmm. And so that takes away a lot of the fear. But in the beginning, yes, I was afraid. Do it anyway. Yeah. Just do it. Ugh, man. I don't think I'm a very shy person, but I still get nervous. I can't imagine how hard it is for somebody who, like, that is, like, an actual, actual thing but something does happen when you start right it feels like god mm-hmm. takes over doesn't it yeah many times i don't even remember what i said and i'm not I'm, i don't think i'll remember much of this because <laughs> uh yeah i'm i i still am well i'm not as shy as any anymore but um because i just am who i am and but, you're very authentic in who you are yeah and uh i think that's important to be our authentic selves mm-hmm. and i know today that if i get up and share my experience but most importantly, my hope that maybe there's somebody in there that can hear it and like know that we do recover. We can go from hopeless to happy, joyous, and free. Mm-hmm. Um, and I give that all to God, right? God did that. But we have to be really willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think, for me, I wasn't really willing to do all the work until I really understood my step one. So all of it kind of goes back to do I really get my step one? Mm-hmm. And you do today. Oh, yes. Are you an alcoholic woman in recovery seeking connection? Maggie's Women's Group is a fellowship group for women in recovery to build friendships and connect with the community at the Magdalene House. Maggie's Women's Group is open to any alcoholic woman in recovery, not just Maggie's alumna. To find out how to get involved and connect with us on Facebook, please visit magdalenhouse.org slash Maggie's Women's Group. All right. Thank you so much, Lynn, for joining me for part two. This is something that has never happened before. In the middle of our recording, we ran into technical difficulties. So Lynn has been so nice to come back and let us finish because we were talking about some really good stuff last week. So I'm just super excited uh, to have you back. Thank you. Now, the first question that I want to ask you this time, uh, the relationship with your kids, where it was to where it is now. Uh, My kids had it pretty rough. Um, There was a period in time where I spent uh, a little time incarcerated and unfortunately, uh, my son went to live with my mother, and he 
wouldn't behave. You know, he was, of course, upset, and um, I can only imagine what he was going through, but she was unable to handle him, and so he got sent to a, a boys' ranch thinking that they could help straighten him out. My parents were just too old. Um, and so he's been really, really resentful, uh, up until recently, really, really resentful that he suffered that consequence because of me. And then I remember near the end, I there was a night when, <clears throat> near the near the very end for me, was uh, I was pulling out of my driveway in my car to go get more alcohol. And the kids were standing, they were 20, 20 and 23 at the time, and they were standing on my front porch and just screaming like, if you leave to go get that, we are gonna hate you, you are not coming back here, we're gonna throw all your things on the front lawn, you will be locked out. And Katie was crying and he was yelling and I pulled out anyway. And I just remember that moment vividly. So now that I've been recovered a while, things have gotten much better. Katie has, lear has a learning disability, so she's just like love and light. You know, nothing's ever wrong. I'm sure it is, but she's just such a sweet person. She doesn't understand what exactly what happened, I don't think. Chris, on the other hand, it, it was a very long period of reconstruction. He never really understood why, when I wanted to, and when he wanted me to, I couldn't quit. He just never understood that. Um, so we did, um, with my sponsor's advice, we did some therapy. And uh, that was one of the hardest times for me because in therapy, they were allowed to say whatever they wanted to say. It was safe. I wasn't going to get angry. You know, just say what you need to say. And so there were times where I sat there and just listened to him have these memories and, and his anger and some memories that were even wrong, you know, that I just, about his father and me, um, that I just, I just sat and listened. And that was um, rather difficult. But I know, like my sponsor said, they, they've earned that. They deserve that right to say what they need to say. So that cleared up a lot of stuff, but there was still a lot of anger. And then about a month ago, my son was listening to, I guess, a podcast, one of his favorite, I don't know, online personalities. I think it was a skateboarder or something. And um, he was discussing his alcoholism and his drug abuse and why he couldn't stop when he wanted to. And then, so Chris caught me that day later and he said, oh, mom, I just totally understand now, I get it. And so we have been golden. I mean, we've been golden for a while, but yeah, that was a pretty cool time. Wow, that's so beautiful. Um, I'm actually getting ready to start therapy with my daughter and I'm so scared for reasons that uh, you just mentioned, so. You guys got through it, and that gives me a little hope that we can too. Uh, so thank you for, for sharing that. Did you end up um, making an amends to each of them, and how did that go? Yes. Um, Katie, I've had to make more than once because I made amends the first time I came through Maggie's. And, of course, she's just so sweet. She's like, it's okay, Mom, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I made amends again when I relapsed because she had to see it again. Um and I make amends regularly because she lives with me. So there are times when, you know, I have to go back and say, I'm so sorry, you know. It, it's kind of, it does get frustrating dealing with her disability sometimes. 
But Chris, yes, I made an amends, and he was like, I just want you to stay sober. Just stay sober and keep doing the next right thing. And then he was like, I don't worry. You know, I got your back. You know, I love you. You can do this. And then he started kind of getting into this coaching um, thing. But, yeah, and that was – he brought up some things in that amends that I didn't remember. Mm. But, um, again, because when we do amends, we don't – argue or mm-hmm. try to correct them or you know so again just like in therapy he deserved to say everything he needed to say but yeah it, it would that was a very large part in reconstruction so mm-hmm. what would you want to say to because when you when you got sober you had a relationship with your daughter but it was your son that was really angry with you yes um, what would you say to a mom who is dealing with that currently yeah. with yeah. having like getting sober and having a child that's very angry with her? Patience, trust, lots of tolerance. So a lot of the main tenets of being recovered, mm-hmm. uh, patience in, and trust in that God's got a plan in this and it may not happen on my time, you know, and I have to allow him to be angry um, and just keep doing the next right thing. Just keep my promises. That was a big thing I never kept. Like, I would make, let's go to movies this weekend, and then I'm drunk, Mm. you know. So when I make a promise that we're going to do this, I always keep it. Um, That's a big, a good way of earning trust. There, I, you know, I'm just human. So, I would say six months ago, there were times we got in arguments and I would argue back and it would cause a big blow up. And so, um, unfortunately that did happen. But like my sponsor said, each time it was a, it was an opportunity for growth and learning, like, um, and pausing, mm-hmm. pausing and not, um, being the parent. Yeah. Like acting like I'm the parent, like. Mm-hmm. Not arguing like I'm his age, right? And so, yeah, that were for those. Those were the key. Like I, I kept. Rem- I remember always. It's a long period of reconstruction. It could be a long period of reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And so, me getting out this time, I knew like I'm not gonna get out of Maggie's, and my family's gonna be all happy with me again, and everything's gonna be golden and just happy, lucky, lucky. You know, um, I had to understand. Be, just be real. I don't know if empathetic is the right word. Just really mm-hmm. understand they, of course, they're going to be angry. I set all of that. I set that ball rolling. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, um, parenting's hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then you um, pour some alcoholism on top of it and got a whole other thing to, to unpack. With and I'm it. sure the kids are like, you've been gone. Like, where have you been? And now you want to step in and like tell us how to do things? Yeah. You know, so that was, I think, again, the patience. Did you find yourself like parenting out of guilt sometimes? Oh, God, yes. I was awful about that. Yeah, I did that too. Just um, doing things for them that I thought was going to earn their favor, um, letting them get away with things that a normal parent wouldn't, mm-hmm. um, letting my son talk to me in a really disrespectful manner, you know, yelling and cursing. And um, I never wanted to, I would just like lay down and 
take it mm-hmm. or do whatever it took to get their favor. Mm-hmm. And that's not helpful either. Right. We're still the parent. Yeah. But my, my sponsor kind of once in a while take off her sponsor hat and put on her mom hat and give me some good suggestions. So uh, I love that. My sponsor does that for me too. She's definitely someone that I respect, not just as a recovered alcoholic, but as a mother. And it's, that was a cool thing too. I had a sponsor who had kids about the same age. Oh yeah. So she was able to. Yeah. Yeah. That is really helpful. If this is crossing the line, let me know. Um, where is their dad? Oh, um, yeah, that's not crossing the line. Okay. I'm an open book. Okay. <laughs> well, I we got separated like 18 years ago. And so he went his way and I went mine. I mean, it was it was a it was a very abusive relationship and, and that was one of the things in therapy like you know, they were like your dad is perfect and I just had to let them believe that. I would never talk mm-hmm. bad about their dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so then I got in another relationship with um, a woman, and so we were together 16 years. But anyway, he went his way, and I didn't even ask for anything in the divorce. Like, I don't want anything. Just and But I would take the kids. He lived in Greenville. I would take them out there to see him, like, once a month. Okay. And um, so it wasn't amicable between he and I. But, you know, we were adult enough to say this is for the kids, and and he passed away uh, about 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had severe epilepsy and just died. The medications just tore him up inside, so. Wow. You know, that takes a lot to go through abuse and still, you know, like be able to not say anything negative. And I think that is so important to not say anything negative about the father or the mother of, of the child, but I imagine it was also difficult for him to be painted so perfect, um, and you kind of get the, I don't know, brunt is the word, um, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, because I learned early on that um, my relationship with him is completely different than a child's relationship with him, mm. and although he wasn't a really good husband, he was a really good dad, so... And why would I want to, like, paint him badly? It, it would only harm my kids. Yeah. It w- it w- and it probably wouldn't even make me feel better. For sure. Absolutely. It'd probably make you feel worse. Mm-hmm. So did you have any resentment or anything towards that relationship? And if so, you know, what helped you get through that, either in the four-step or anything else? Yeah, unfortunately... The 15-year marriage with my husband and the 16-year marriage with my wife, which is a whole other story, um, were both really abusive, uh, physically abusive. Um, so I did have both of them on my fourth step. But it's just kind of the same with any other relationship, be it your best friend or whatever, that, um, well, maybe not a best friend, but that they were sick people too and many times I set the ball rolling and well I don't want to even say that because there's no reason for right. anybody to, to, to set their hands on you so for I won't sure. even say that but if I were to continue to be angry and carry on that res- resentment you know it says resentment is the number one offender then I'm gonna drink again mm-hmm. and so I had to learn very quickly just to forgive and they were sick people just as I was you know I'm no better mm-hmm. we were sick yeah. and um, 
in the end, I, I think my husband found a, a good place with his higher power, and and then I don't know what happened to the to my wife. She did not want to get well, and mm. so, but yeah, I had to learn. Yeah, just forgiveness and and resentments have killed me. So yeah, no, I think eventually it comes down to uh, justified anger or death. You um, know, you yeah. know, like because if I'm. Like you said, resentment is the number one offender, and it, it'll kill me. So mm-hmm. I think um, that also speaks so much to the program and your relationship with God and your willingness. is Because um, you have to be w- like willing to look at things from an entirely different angle, right? And willing to have a new perspective on things. And so it sounds like you were really willing to do those things. Man, that all goes back to step one. Yeah. Like he's even today, I'll get into things and um, my sponsor will remind me, like just remember you're willing to go to any length. And so step one made me understand if I don't do these things, I'm going to drink again. And for me to drink again is to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, we laugh and joke and have fun around here, right? Laugh and carry on. But it is a serious underlying deadly disease. And yeah. so I never, because even if I didn't die physically, I would die internally you know just go back to that dark black place and I never want to do that again so the desperation is what makes me willing every day yeah that's so awesome it's but it's not easy oh (laughs) I want to get that clear it's I'm making it sound easy it ain't easy so yeah definitely I mean this work is not easy if it was I think everybody would would do it and everybody would recover but it's not easy goes back to that simple but not easy yeah right um, I want to talk to you about the relationship with your sponsor, um, and it's going to sound like we're in next step again, but how often do you talk to your sponsor? Oh, every day. Every day? There are times when I might go, well, so for three years, there's not been more than two, maybe three days go by and I don't call her. Um, I've been calling a lot more recently later because I'm working through some things, going back to school and just like in fear, and um, and I haven't always been the best tenth stepper. So I'm trying to just like call. I'll call. I told her I said I'm gonna call. I might call you ten times a day if you want me to tenth step about everything. She said, "Okay, that's my job." Aww. You know. So, um, yeah. Um, I think you know tenth stepping is so important, mm-hmm. and I haven't been the best best at it. So, yeah. With her, it's like when you feel these things, call me immediately. Yeah. And yeah. Um, like I said, I haven't been the best of it. Best well, at it. So I'm trying to do real. I'm trying, trying to do better. I mean, I know, like, when I'm, like, on top of tent stepping and everything, like, um, I had a profound experience around step 10 a few years ago, and it, like, totally changed my life, you know? Why would I, after that, I don't understand why I fall back into the pattern of not doing it, because I have had the experience of what it's like when you're disciplined, mm-hmm. and life is so much better. And, you know, another thing I realized when I was doing a, this is where sponsorship is really important, right? Because one of my, I was sponsoring someone and we're doing the fifth step. And I read in the fifth step, a solitary self-appraisal seldom suffices. Mm -hmm. And when I don't call my sponsor, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. I've got this sick mind trying to figure out this sick mind. It's one of my favorite lines. And I always point that out with sponsees when I'm reading the fifth step, because it's like, that's not only for this, but it's later on when we get to step 10. Yeah, Yeah. So many of the steps work. I mean. I really have to work all the steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It like prepares you for 10, 11, and 12. Mm-hmm. So when you first met her, you didn't know her, I assume. 
um, how did you build that relationship and what would you want to uh, tell someone who's listening who's maybe nervous about you know getting a sponsor and having to trust this person and all of those things wow that's a big deal for me because I had a big long difficulty with trust yeah um, and I don't know why I would probably need years of psychotherapy to figure that out. <laughs> but, um, well, first off, I mean, if you're really willing and they're telling you get a sponsor, you're going to get a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so I wasn't too shy about it because I just, I don't know, when I was listening to her in a meeting, I was like, that's her. Something just like this feeling came over me. That's the one. And um, so I, I was scared, but I knew that I needed it. And... Um, yeah, I simply knew right away um, that I could relate to everything she was saying. and But I wasn't, I think that's, for a long time, that was my difficulty with step 10, is that I was just mistrustful. Like, I, even when I had my fist step, if I say these things out loud to this person, they're not going to like me. Like, mm. surely, if they know everything about me, they're not going to like me. And and that was a matter of trust, because I, like, I didn't know this person. Yeah, You know, I'd only known her for two weeks. Less than that, because I got her later on. But um, I, I hate to say it, but it all goes back to step one. Like, I really just have to be willing. One of my friends has a tattoo, Jump Afraid, you know? But, yeah, I don't know. Learning that trust was the hardest part for me. Just When do you think that trust came? Probably not for almost nine months. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, and I think that probably had a good part to do with why I relapsed because I was I I don't want to say unable but I was had a hard time trusting that I can be totally honest with this person and I can show my imperfections and because my ideal was that I had to be like perfect and just show this person that I could do this and do that and um because I didn't trust that if I showed my imperfections that they were going to stick around Mm-hmm. So I have kind of a different story along with that. But, um, yeah, I think just with um, the spiritual awakening, it's a, a learning thing. And maybe for me it, it had to be learned. Like I said, it goes back to step one. I had to be willing to just jump afraid and yeah. share things that I normally wouldn't share. Yeah. And what a gift, though, huh? Yeah. To be able to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I know with my sponsees, if, if they're not telling me everything – it makes it a lot harder to help them. Oh, absolutely. I get a call one day, oh, I broke up with my boyfriend, and I'm like, gonna, I want to go drink, da, 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 and crying. And I'm like, I, you never, I haven't talked to you in two weeks. You never told me you had a boyfriend. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> an important part of, an important little detail. Yeah. Um, but that's so true, you know, like our sponsors can only help us with how, with how willing we're able to tell them and be honest with them. Um, that taught me a lot about my sponsor, too, being patient. Yeah. And um and then finally just saying, look, this you're gonna drink again. There's red flags. You're not being honest. Mm-hmm. Um and but but sticking with me. And so I try to be patient and kindly with my sponsees too. I imagine you probably are. <laughs> so well you have your book and I wanted to ask you, um, can you pick one of your favorite parts of the book to read and tell us why it is? You know, it's funny when I chair meetings, I'll open to a page and I want to say, this is my favorite page. And mm-hmm. they're like, okay, like That's 98% yeah. of the pages are my favorite page. 
But I can go back to the beginning of my recovery journey as page 28. Um, there, God, like I said, there's so many, but this is one that just jump, jumps into my heart because the beginning says, we in our turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. What seemed at first a, a flimsy raid has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. Because I thought I was just going to get sober. Mm-hmm. But it's designed for living, right? And then it gets even better. If what we have learned and felt and and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship, you know, past that knowledge, upon a simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. And that's funny because we were just talking about willing and honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the main things I learned that makes me think of that is I can never do anything to make God love me less, mm. but I can also n- never do anything to make God love me more. Yeah. It's just love. So, yeah, yeah. I love that. I'm the whole time we've been talking, I'm like thinking of what this podcast is going to be called. And then you read that and I feel like it's going to be called the gift of desperation. I think that's a good name for this one. That's awesome. Cause when we are going through, we don't think it's a, gift <laughs> yes but it is it is it turns out to be the best thing that ever happened I see ladies come in that are or I meet new ladies it's 24 or whatever and they're just so desperate and crying in that black hole I almost want to be happy because like that's really where you kind of have to get before you're yeah. really willing yeah yeah definitely and then keeping that gift you know staying yeah, desperate I, I have that written on the end of my book really it says on the end of my book, may I never forget on my best day that I still need God as desperately as I did on my worst. Love that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've been together, both parts, we've been talking for an hour, and I know you have to go be a community assistant, which if you want to know what a community assistant is, check out our website on the volunteer page. Lynn is one of our beloved volunteers, and we couldn't do what we do without volunteers like like her. But anyways... Um, you told a story on birthday night or something about the sign. Oh. Can you tell my that? sign. Yeah, can you tell that story? It makes me smile. See my smile? Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yes. It was, um, there was a smoking area at the old house uh, that everybody, you know, hung out with. And we could go outside and smoke every, and um, any time of day. And it was like 3.30 in the morning, and I was... You know, that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, just hopeless. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that's kind of why I thought I was going to have trouble with step two is I didn't think God liked me because I had done so many things wrong and so many things had happened to me. I just knew that he didn't like me, so I wasn't going to like him. And so I was out in the smoking area, and there was this little sign, and we saw it over and over and over and over again. Like, every time we smoked, it was there, right? And said, I love you, I love you, I love you, God. And nobody... Like, it was just there. We didn't pay any attention to it. But it was 3.30 in the morning, and I looked over at it, and, it's, and for some reason, this thought came to my mind, and it said, Hey, Lynn, despite everything you've done and everything that's happened, I still love you. Hey, Lynn, it was so personal. I love you. No, like, I really love you. And I was, that was a spiritual experience for me. Yeah, it gives me chills. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I really do have chills. So I love that sign. Yeah, that's so that's, awesome. Kind of one of the reasons my brick out there says, you are loved, you are worthy. Because mm. I think a lot of us need to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. So good. Before I ask you the wrap-up question, 
what do you think are some of the greatest gifts that you've received as a result from the program? That's a hard question because there's so many. I know. Family reconstruction. A big one for me was peace of mind because mm-hmm. my mind is, you know, it says we can be alone and in perfect peace and ease. That was something I never had. Uh, you know, my mind was always running, running like this or that or, you know, just crazy thoughts. And, I, and I'll never forget the one day nothing was happening in my mind. And I called my sponsor and I said, something's wrong. I don't, I'm not crazy right now. And she said, you might be experiencing a little serenity. And I'm like, whoa. That's so, awesome. Yeah, uh, peace of mind, uh, family reconstruction. Oh, a large one is to see, to see a fellowship grow up around you. Mm-hmm. Because I, my parents are gone, my brother is gone. And so this is my family. Yeah, so mm-hmm. to see that. It's talked about in step 12 where we carried the message together, but mm-hmm. yeah. Now, you mentioned before that like you didn't like you, so you didn't think God would like you. Do you like you now? Yeah. I learned through sponsorship that um, we don't live on a, a vertical plane. Like I don't seek my validation from other people or who loves me or doesn't like me or, or things like that. Now, it's it's still a struggle sometimes if somebody doesn't like me I'm like personalizing it like I don't like you yeah and really they don't care less but um and we learn or I'm trying to learn to live on a horizontal plane because it's it's the only thing that matters my relationship with my higher power Mm -hmm. and if and if I'm desiring to please my higher power I'm good and I know that I'm accepted there no matter what people around me are going to change people around me are going to piss me off some people aren't going to like me but I can't base my worth on that. Yeah. That's, that's probably been one of the best things I've learned. That's awesome. Such a good place to get to, too. And I still struggle with it. Yes. Don't give me, I don't want anybody to think that, like, it's all rainbows and butterflies. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so do I. You know? I think these things can always come back and be a struggle, but, you know. For the- and that's what's cool, too, is, like, I believe my desire to please my higher power pleases my higher power. Yes. So whether I'm a successful or not I you know yes I love that it's so good I love that prayer okay so the wrap-up question is if you could leave the listeners with one takeaway for a woman who's is struggling to get sober stay sober or whatever the case may be and they were only going to hear this one thing what would you want to tell them I would say if you've reached that deep dark hole just try to find that one little piece of courage that you reach out for help hmm. because there is a solution. And sometimes I want to stand on the street corner and just say, I'm an alcoholic, but I know a solution, you know, come, mm-hmm. come in here. It's really, really hard. It takes a lot of courage to reach out your hand for help. And then feeling that hopelessness, but there's a solution. Mm-hmm. And that's what's the key. And if you're really desperate, the solution is even more attainable. Well, I love you. This was fantastic, by the way. So to all of our listeners, um, if you have loved what you heard, I told you in the beginning that if you did not know Lynn, you would love her by the end of this podcast. (laughs) I'm sure I was right. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us on Spotify, uh, share with a friend, upload to your Instagram stories, um, do all the things that we need to do to get this message of hope out there to the person who needs to hear it. 
Um, and until then, I will catch you all on the next episode. Bye. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org. 